Welcome to Bible Study for Regular People. I'm Tana, and let's get started. Last time in Ecclesiastes was chapters 8, 9, and the first four verses of chapter 10. Well, this section starts at chapter 10, verse 5. I'm going to read the first four verses first. As dead flies cause even a bottle of perfume to stink, so a little foolishness spoils great wisdom and honor. A wise person chooses the right road, a fool takes the wrong one. You can identify fools just by the way they walk down the street. If your boss is angry at you, don't quit. A quiet spirit can overcome even great mistakes. So, starting verse 5, this subtitle here is called The Ironies of Life. There is another evil I have seen under the sun. Kings and rulers make a grave mistake when they give great authority to foolish people and low positions to help people of proven worth. I have even seen servants riding horseback like princes and princes walking like servants. And then it changes style here and goes into kind of a poem, poetic style. When you dig a well, you might fall in. When you demolish an old wall, you could be bitten by a snake. When you work in a quarry, stones might fall and crush you. When you chop wood, there is danger with each stroke of your axe. Using a dull axe requires great strength, so sharpen the blade. That's the value of wisdom. It helps you succeed. If a snake bites before you charm it, what's the use of being a snake charmer? <laughs> I don't know why that one tickled me so much. If a snake bites before you charm it, what's the use of being a snake charmer? Oh, I love it. Verse 12, wise, word. <laughs> wise words bring approval, but fools are destroyed by their own words. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, I had to give myself a minute. All right, verse 12, wise words bring approval, but fools are destroyed by their own words. Fools base their thoughts on foolish assumptions, so their conclusions will be wicked madness. They chatter on and on. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably trying to charm a snake. <laughs> no one really knows what is going to happen. No one can predict the future. Fools are so exhausted by a little work that they can't even find their way home. What sorrow for the land ruled by a servant, the land whose leaders feast in the morning. Happy is the land whose king is a noble leader and whose leaders feast at the proper time to gain strength for their work not to get drunk. Laziness leads to a sagging roof. Idleness leads to a leaky house. A party gives laughter, wine gives happiness, and money gives everything. Never make light of the king, even in your thoughts, and don't make fun of the powerful, even in your own bedroom, for a little bird might deliver your message and tell them what you said. And how many movies have been based off of that plot line? Chapter 11, verse 1. This subtitle is The Uncertainties of Life. Send your grain across the seas, and in time profits will flow back to you. But divide your investments among many places, for you do not know what risks might lie ahead. When clouds are heavy, the rains come down. Whether a tree falls north or south, it stays where it falls. Farmers who wait 
for perfect weather never plant. If they watch every cloud, they never harvest. Just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb, so you cannot understand the activity of God, who does all things. Plant your seed in the morning and keep busy all afternoon, for you don't know if profit will come from one activity or another, or maybe both. Advice for young and old. Light is sweet, how pleasant to see a new day dawning when people live to be very old. Let them rejoice in every day of life, but let them also remember there will be many dark days. Everything still to come is meaningless. Young people. It's wonderful to be young. Enjoy every minute of it. Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. But remember that you must give an account to God for everything you do. So refuse to worry and keep your body healthy. But remember that youth with a whole life before you is meaningless. Don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Honor him in your youth before you grow old and say, life is not pleasant anymore. Remember him before the light of the sun, moon, and stars is dim to your old eyes and rain clouds continually darken your sky. Remember him before your legs, the guards of your house start to tremble and before your shoulders, the strong men stoop. Remember him before your teeth, your few remaining servants stop grinding and before your eyes, the women looking through the windows, see dimly. Remember him before the door to life's opportunities is closed and the sound of work fades. Now you rise at the first chirping of the birds, but then all their sounds will grow faint. Remember him before you become fearful of falling and worry about danger in the streets, before your hair turns white like an almond tree in bloom, and you drag along without energy like a dying grasshopper, and the caperberry no longer inspires sexual desire. Remember him before you near the grave, your everlasting home, when the mourners will weep at your funeral. Yes, remember your creator now, while you are young, before the silver cord of life snaps and the golden bowl is broken. Don't wait until the water jar is smashed at the spring and the pulley is broken at the well, for then the dust will return to the earth, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So I want to make a comment on the first few verses of our of our section here, chapter 10, verses 5, 6, and 7. There's another evil I have seen under the sun, that kings and rulers make a grave mistake when they give great authority to foolish people and low positions to people of proven worth. I have even seen servants riding horseback like princes and princes walking like servants. So I was in a work-related webinar the other day, and they were talking about people of character versus people of charisma and who gets promoted. And that in their survey of X number businesses across America and X number employees, whatever, yada, yada, they found, not surprising, uh, that employees reported that um, they would much rather work for a person of character, but their studies also found that it tended to be the people of charisma that more, more often get promoted. 
into higher positions. And this is what tends to make companies toxic and have high turnover and low employee satisfaction, low morale, and how can the workforce stop promoting the wrong people? Just because they can talk good, but everybody below them is miserable. Um, and so I thought, man, I mean, they really called it out. They're like, our, our system in America is messed up. We cannot keep promoting <laughs> the wrong people. Um, and so when I read this, that's what it reminded me of. Kings and rulers make a grave mistake when they give great authority to foolish people and low positions to people of proven worth. It's the people of high character that need to be promoted. I've even seen servants riding horseback like princes and princes walking like servants, right? It's, it's the people who maybe haven't done that much work but can talk like they really have uh, that might move up while the people who are really carrying the most weight um, don't get the recognition sometimes. Anyway, it's, it's interesting to me to, after, you know, had I not just had that training, I would never have thought that from reading this. Uh, but now it makes perfect sense. Like there's this little trinket of our modern day, uh, system. There's this little trinket of wisdom about how we do business in today's day and age written so many years ago, right? It's just, goes to show how these bits of wisdom can get culturally translated in time and place and still have value for for modern day readers. There's a comment here I want to read on chapter 10 verse 19. A party gives laughter, wine gives happiness, and money gives everything. Government leaders, businesses, families, even churches get trapped into thinking money can meet all their needs. Yep, they called churches out, and I agree. We throw money at our problems, but just as the thrill of wine is only temporary, the soothing effects of the last purchase soon wears off, and we have to buy more. Scripture recognizes that money is necessary for survival, but it warns against the love of money. See Matthew 6, 24, 1 Timothy 6, 10, and Hebrews 13, 5. Money is dangerous because it deceives us into thinking that wealth is the easiest way to get everything we want. The love of money is sinful because we trust money rather than God to solve our problems. Those who pursue its empty promises will one day discover that they have nothing because they are spiritually bankrupt. I think what makes this concept challenging is how subtle this plays out because while I don't actually worship money in any way, I'm certainly prone to thinking, gosh, I wish we had money to do XYZ to the house. I wish we had money to do XYZ whatever, fill in the blank. And it's been times of, it's been certain moments in life that check me on that, right? Times of grief and loss or some form of tragedy or generosity or benevolence 
it's been moments that all of a sudden raise my awareness to those thoughts that I might have had at some point and how silly that actually is, right? There are would-be-nice kind of stuff, sure, but does it really need to be a longing? No, not really, <laughs> right? Like, when, when your priorities get checked, they get checked. Um, unfortunately, that wears off, I think, with time. Like, my priorities have, have been checked multiple times throughout my life and different things. And then life happens and more responsibilities happen and more things to manage happen and more things to fix happen and, and you don't really realize maybe how many thoughts you might have throughout the course of a month or a year about how money would be solving XYZ problem or whatever. So this is, a, this is, this I think is, is dangerous in its subtlety, if that makes sense. All right, here's another good juicy one. Chapter 11, verse four, farmers who wait for perfect weather never plant. If they watch every cloud, they never harvest. Waiting for perfect conditions will mean inactivity. This practical insight is especially applicable in our spiritual lives. If we wait for the perfect time and place for personal Bible reading, we will never begin. If we wait for a perfect church, we will never join. If we wait for the perfect ministry, we will never serve. Take steps now to grow spiritually. Don't wait for conditions that may never exist. And as I read that, I thought of things in my own life that have been in that place of waiting. Waiting for the perfect conditions and... I don't think they're ever going to happen. And that's just something I get to cope with. And sometimes that's what therapists are for. <laughs> he only gave a couple words of wisdom for, uh, however, however old you might see yourself. <laughs> when people, uh, chapter 11, verse eight, when people live to be very old, however you might define that. Let them rejoice in every day of life, but let them also remember there will be many dark days. Everything still to come is meaningless. Solomon in no dreary pessimist is no dreary pessimist in Ecclesiastes 11, 7 to 12, 14. He encourages us to rejoice in every day, but to remember that eternity is far longer than a person's lifespan. Psalm 90.12 says, Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. The wise person does not just think about the moment and its impact, but takes the long-range view toward eternity. Approach your decisions with God's perspective. Consider their impact 10 years from now and into eternity. Live with the attitude that although our life is short, we will live with God forever. And of course, he had a lot of words for young people. <clears throat> but, uh, verse 9 says, Young people, it's wonderful to be young. Enjoy every minute of it. Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. But remember that you must give an account to God for everything you do. So refuse to worry and keep your body healthy. But remember that youth, with a whole 
life before you is meaningless. People often say it doesn't matter, but many of a person's choices will be irreversible. Hello, social media. <laughs> Once you put it on the internet, young people, it will follow you forever. They will affect that person for a lifetime. What you do when you're young does matter. Enjoy life now, but don't do anything physically, morally, or spiritually that will prevent you from enjoying life when you are old. Picking up in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and this section is quite famous. You might recognize it. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans, and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others... I would have gained nothing. This kind of coincides with Ecclesiastes quite nicely, which is basically saying everything under the sun is meaningless. And here he's saying, yeah, it is. If it's absent of love. Verse four, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. Ooh. Mm. Talk about marriages where everybody's calling out selfishness. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now, our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. I want to reread verse 12. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. I'm going to read chapter 14 as well. The Gifts of Tongues and Prophecy. Let love be your highest goal. But you should also desire the special abilities that spirit gives, especially the ability to prophecy. For if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you will be talking only to God, since people won't be able to understand you. 
You'll be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but it will all be mysterious. But one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them, and comforts them. A person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally, but one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. I wish you could all speak in tongues, but even more, I wish you could all prophecy, for prophecy is greater than speaking in tongues unless someone interprets what you are saying so that the whole church will be strengthened. Dear brothers and sisters, if I should come to you speaking in an unknown language, how would that help you? But if I bring a revelation or some special knowledge or prophecy or teaching, that will be helpful. Even lifeless instruments like the flute or the harp must play the notes clearly or no one will recognize the melody. And if the burglar, I'm sorry, if the bugler doesn't, very different word there. If the bugler doesn't sound a clear call, how will the soldiers know they are being called to battle? It's the same for you. If you speak to people in words they don't understand, how will they know what you're saying? You might as well be talking to an empty space. There are many different languages in the world and every language has meaning, but if I don't understand a language, I will be a foreigner to someone who speaks it and the one who speaks it will be a foreigner to me. And the same is true for you. Since you are so eager to have the special abilities the Spirit gives, seek those that will strengthen the whole church. So anyone who speaks in tongues should pray also for the ability to interpret what has been said. For if I pray in tongues, my spirit is praying, but I don't understand what I am saying. Well then, what shall I do? I will pray in the spirit, and I will also pray in words I understand. I will sing in the spirit, and I will also sing in words I understand. For if you praise God only in the spirit, how can those who don't understand you praise God along with you? How can they join you in giving thanks when they don't understand what you are saying? You will be giving thanks very well, but it won't strengthen the people who hear you. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you, but in a church meeting, I would rather speak five understandable words to help others than 10,000 words in an unknown language. Dear brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your understanding of these things. Be innocent as babies when it comes to evil. But be mature in understanding matters of this kind. It is written in the scriptures. I will speak to my own people through strange languages and through the lips of foreigners, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So you see that speaking in tongues is a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for the benefit of believers, not unbelievers. Even so, if unbelievers are people who don't understand these things come into your church meeting and hear everyone speaking in an unknown language, they will think you are crazy. <laughs> Verse 24, but if all of you who are prophesying and unbelievers or people who don't understand these things come into your meeting, they will be convicted of sin and judged by what you are, judged by what you say. As they listen, their secret thoughts will be exposed and they will fall to their knees and worship God, declaring God is truly here among you. Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given, one will speak in tongues, and another will interpret what is said. But everything that is done must strengthen all of you. No more than two or three should speak in tongues. They must speak one at a time, and someone must interpret what they say. But if no one is present who can interpret, they must be silent in your church meeting and speak in tongues to God privately. Let two or three people prophesy and let the others evaluate what is said. 
But if someone is prophesying and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who is speaking must stop. And this way, all who prophesy will have a turn to speak one after the other so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. Women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive. There's the S word again. <laughs> should be submissive. Just as the law says, if they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. Or do you think God's word originated with you, Corinthians? And there's a reminder of who he's talking here to here. Or do you think God's word originated with you, Corinthians? Are you the only ones to whom it was given? If you claim to be a prophet or think you are spiritual, you should recognize that what I am saying is a command from the Lord himself. But if you do not recognize this, you yourself will not be recognized. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues. But be sure that everything is done properly and in order. Whew, that was only two chapters, but it covered a lot of ground. Chapter 13 is the love chapter. And basically sets the stage for everything that follows. He's saying love has to be first and foremost. It is the priority here. Without love, all of this prophesying and speaking in tongues is not worth a whole lot. He even says, verse 2, If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans, and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith, and I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. This love chapter, I feel like, speaks to a very basic human principle that withstands time, right? Your your actions mean nothing if, if you're not doing it from a place of love, right? If it's not genuine. There's other parts of scripture, particularly in Paul's letters, to various churches, including this one, where, in my opinion, some of the things withstand through time and other things seem to be Paul speaking to a specific group of people at a specific geographical location at a specific point in time for a specific issue they were dealing with. And sometimes I think if we try too hard to apply them directly to our life today or take them too literally, he would probably just roll his eyes at us, you know? Like if he was here today, he might have very different words for our churches today. And he might say, why are you being so literal about that? That was for that church and their situation. I didn't write that to you directly. And then other things that are more universal principles, of course. Anyway, I don't have any magic wand to like know where that gray area is of what should or shouldn't apply to us today, but particularly in the letters to the churches, I, I sense a lot of that when I'm reading them sometimes. And then on cha in chapter 14, he goes into detail about gifts of tongues and prophecy. And this is one of those sections where 
I feel like he gives a lot of things specifically to the Corinthian church that have probably, in my opinion, been taken too literally over the years and divided uh, the, the church in a number of ways and different um, denominations and belief systems when his main message here, the principle that when we come together, our focus should be on benefiting each other. And he basically says, tongues is great, but that's you talking to God. But if God gives a message to you to share with the people, you'd better shut up <laughs> and let God talk, right? Like he basically says, stop talking tongues or otherwise and listen to God and let him speak like that needs to take precedence always that I think is a foundational principle we can all unite on regardless of varying opinions or views on speaking in tongues or what have you I've had some personal experience with it both uh both as an observer and participant and there's at least one time I am, I'll say 95% certain it absolutely was the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to say 100% because I don't know all, right? But I'm very, I feel very comfortable saying at least one time it was the Holy Spirit. And then there's other times that it made me feel very uncomfortable. And I think what made me feel uncomfortable about it is that it felt disingenuine. It felt like it wasn't real <laughs> right like it was just showy and there was none of this that he's talking about there was no prophesying there's no interpreting there was none of that it was just a bunch of of random babble that from my perspective at the time I'm not seeing any purpose for it other than you know a, a very emotional experience maybe but so I've kind of I feel like I've seen it both ways, both in a, in a very Holy Spirit driven, um, amazing setting and both where you kind of, I kind of can see what Paul was maybe worried about, uh, where it can go sideways. But this one, uh, comment here on verses, uh, chapter 14, verse two to five, I think is good. Paul's words to the Corinthians about tongues and prophecy have much to say to our generation. Many Christians struggle with the discussion of tongues. Paul would clearly say that no one should put down those Christians who speak in tongues, and those who speak in tongues should not disparage those who do not. Paul makes several points about speaking in tongues. Number one, it is a spiritual gift from God, 1 Corinthians 14, 2. Number two, it is a desirable gift, even though it isn't a requirement of faith. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 31. Number three, it is less important than prophecy and teaching. 1 Corinthians 14, 4. Believers need unity and love. The enemy is not each other, but the sinful world system, Satan, and our selfish sinful desires. But Paul would have another word for today. I wish you could call prophecy. Although Paul himself spoke in tongues, he stresses prophecy, parentheses preaching, because it benefits the whole church while speaking in tongues primarily benefits the speaker. Paul would encourage us to be so in tune with the spirit that his messages of comfort, 
encouragement, and edification would be heard in our congregations today. Make sure your actions are encouraging and edifying. I like that. Ooh, here's another juicy comment uh, on chapter 14, verse 9. It's the same for you. If you speak to people in words they don't understand, how will they know what you are saying? You might as well be talking into empty space. Paul confronted the self-oriented use of the gift of tongues. Spiritual people must be careful not to pursue self-development at the expense of broken, lost people. When we give too much attention to our own needs, ideas, and spiritual expression, I like that phrase, when we give too much attention to our own needs, ideas, and spiritual expression, we may push aside the Spirit's true desire and abandon those who need encouragement. Follow Paul's advice and make encouraging and edifying others the highest goal. Again, I think this is one kind of like how the love of money is dangerous because it's subtle. I think this one could be dangerous because it's subtle because... um. In my view, at least the kind of American culture is is very values self-expression, right? I want my coffee to be sugar-free, dairy-free, non-fat, blah, 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 right? We can, like, customize everything, and it becomes part of, you know, our our tastes and even self-expression. And so this cultural value, I think could translate into our religious culture and what they call spiritual expression at the expense of others. I hope I'm not doing that with this podcast because <laughs> I'm really just reading things and talking about them on the fly, right? Because Again, this is Bible study for regular people, and regular people don't sit down and make a sermon when they read the Bible, right? We just read it and think it through, and that's all I'm doing here. But I really feel like in my head, while I might share what's rolling around in there, I'm not, I don't, that's one thing I miss about doing it in this way as opposed to in like a group setting because I, I miss getting to hear people's counterpoints or other views, um, which I have, I really enjoy that part because I'm like, oh, I never would have thought about it like that. Or, oh, maybe, maybe I'm seeing something wrong or maybe this is just how scripture speaks to two different people in two different ways or it's very influenced by our experience. I I missed that. So anyway, not trying to push my spiritual expression onto anyone else at their expense for sure. I will say though, thank you to my mother-in-law if you're listening to this, because sometimes she'll listen and then she'll talk to me about it afterward and she'll bring up another viewpoint. And I'm like, oh, how cool is that? So I do get a little bit of that. Thank you. Thank you to you, Nancy. <laughs> Chapter 14, verse 22 to 25. Comment here. I'm not going to reread that section, though. The way the Corinthians were speaking in tongues was helping no one because believers did not understand what was being said and unbelievers thought that the people speaking in tongues were crazy. Speaking in tongues was supposed to be a sign to unbelievers, as it was in Acts 2. 
After speaking in tongues, believers were supposed to explain what was said and give the credit to God. The unsaved people would then be convinced of a spiritual reality and motivated to look further into the Christian faith. While this is one way to reach unbelievers, Paul says that clear preaching is usually better. So it's kind of like when Jesus met the woman at the well and basically told her, she's like, I have no husband. And he's like, you're right. In fact, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with with right now is not your husband. And that's all he had to say. And she's like, holy smokes, how does he know this? Right? Because he was a complete stranger to her. Then Jesus dies on the cross and he says, I'm going to send someone later, which was the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit does that thing that Jesus did for disciples, right? So that's why if the Holy Spirit gives someone a message, but they don't share it, or there's nobody there to prophecy, or someone's just speaking in tongues, but there's no interpretation of anything, if it's not explained to anyone, it's not going to help them. Jesus was able to, in one sentence, or in one simple conversation, show someone that had just met him that he wasn't a normal human, right? Piqued her interest and got her paying attention to who he was and what he was about. So we don't want to get in the way of that is Paul's message, I think. All right, next is on women's role in the church. So here's one of those where I have to check my own biases all the time because I am a bit more progressively minded here, I suppose, where this feels to me like he's speaking to a specific group at a specific time because of an issue they were having, right? Does that mean today that women in church can, are not allowed to ask questions, (laughs) right? Like that to me just seems bizarre that women have to be silent in church. That just doesn't seem right to me based on these two verses when we've got plenty of evidence elsewhere that shows women were participating. So the comment they wrote here, and part of me is like, how much of that is just me wanting to hear what I want to hear? How much of that is uh, translation lost in time? Here's the comment on this. Does this mean that women should not speak in church services today? It is clear that women prayed and prophesied in public worship, 1 Corinthians 11.5. It is also clear that women are given spiritual gifts and are encouraged to exercise them in the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12-14. Women have much to contribute and can participate in worship services. In the Corinthian culture, women were not allowed to confront men in public. Apparently, some of the women who had become Christians thought that their Christian freedom gave them the right to question the men in public worship. This was causing division in the church. In addition, women of that day did not receive formal religious education, as did the men. Women may have been raising questions in the worship services that could have been answered at home without disrupting the services. 
Paul was asking the women not to flaunt their Christian freedom during worship. The purpose of Paul's words was to promote unity, not to teach about women's timeless roles in the church. So that's an interesting perspective, bringing in the historical context around this letter. Um, and again, I kind of always, every once in a while, a little alert pops up when I read the comments as well, because the authors writing these comments are, they have their own biases too, right? So I don't know. I don't have any answers there. Uh, but to close, here's the last comment I'm going to read. Paul stated that God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Note that the preferred alternative to disorder is peace. Too often, in resisting disorder, Christians have opted for rigid, predictable, and unvarying forms of worship in which God's presence is as difficult to find as in disorderly gatherings. This is what I generally is referred to as uh, coming to the funeral of Jesus kind of services. When there is chaos, the church is not allowing God to work among believers as he would like. Worship that is done properly and in order, quote, should not rule out God's creativity, joy, and unpredictability. Do your part to have worship be joyful, peaceful, uh, be a joyful, peaceful, winsome experience that draws people into it. Yeah, where's that balance, right? Some people have taken that when he says church should be done properly and in order that means there can be no clapping there can be no instruments there can be no laughing it's there can be no children giggling or being disruptive in any way shape or form it is all serious all the time we're here to worship christ he died and this is basically feels like his funeral and then it can be uh, also can get pretty wild, which can be disruptive as well. So it's like, where's that balance, right? Where the Holy Spirit is active, God is present, um, and people are able to worship fully. <laughs>